Welcome to episode 36 of The Process, Purple Heart. of the process i am quayvon taylor and i am amante martin uh today we have john allen on the podcast welcome to the podcast john hey thanks for having me uh could you tell the listeners uh where you're from i'm originally from uh quincy massachusetts which is maybe 10 minutes south of of boston proper uh what was it like growing up there um you know, it's one of those things where when you're growing up, wherever you are, you don't know any difference. So you don't really have any perspective until you leave. Um, looking back at my childhood, um, I guess it's not really all that surprising that I wound up um, becoming a Navy SEAL. Uh, it was a town that, uh, like, street fighting was very common. It was kind of like you were always looking to prove yourself, and you're always, like, posturing in case someone wanted to, like, fight you to prove themselves. It was like a kind of street tough town, and it was a big part of the culture growing up. Ironically, uh, I got my ass kicked constantly. I was like not tough, uh, and maybe that was what ultimately spurned my desire to like kind of on a grand scale go prove my manhood and go become a Navy SEAL. So it was, it was a tough upbringing, but to be honest, at the time, I, I, I loved growing up in Boston. I'm still a fervent, you know, Red Sox Nation, Pats Nation kind of sports fan, and I have family in Boston, um, but definitely kind of a, a you know rough rough town to grow up in. Wow! So before before you decided to join the Navy SEALs, you know what kind of things were, were you an athlete? Um, you know who were you before the Navy SEAL the Navy came? So I grew up my my uh, my family. You know, despite you know just having painted a picture of a town that's like you know full of brutes. Um, my my family was actually and still are just very accomplished people um, on the kind of academic side, like very intellectually gifted uh, parents and siblings. I have you know multiple Pulitzer Prize winning family members in my immediate family. Um, you know Ivy League schools, you name it. And and so coming up, the reason I say all that is, you know, coming up in in my childhood, I. 
nobody was placing any sort of pressure on me. I didn't feel pressure to become an academic, let's say. But it was pretty clear that there was just a high bar for just what success looked like in my family. Um, and while I certainly had the aptitude to, you know, be successful, um, kind of down the academic route, if you will, um, I just, I just didn't like the idea of, of kind of becoming like my family. And so, you know, I wish I could say that the way I handled myself is I excelled in other things to stand out. Um, but really what I did is I just blew off school and, and like pretended like that was my big rebellion. When in reality, I just got terrible grades, uh, barely made it through high school. Uh, and, you know, I played baseball. I played baseball in high school. Very, I was actually really good at baseball. Probably could have played in college, but I kind of blew that off too towards the end of high school. Um, didn't really have my act together. Uh, the only reason I actually got into college, because uh, I went to college out in Western Massachusetts at the University of Massachusetts, um, was because my mom, uh, and again, she's a very gifted, talented writer. Uh, she wrote my college essay and like my grades were awful. Like I, I literally, I graduated high school, but I was called into the office before I graduated and they were like, you really shouldn't be. We're just kicking you out of school effectively. Um, and so my mom writes this amazing essay on my college application and the school that accepted me, um, when they accepted me, I got a special message from them saying we would not normally accept someone with a grade point average as low as yours or with like virtually no extracurriculars, but your essay was so good. We're going to accept you into school. And so I have this great opportunity to go to college. Uh, totally on the strength of my parents, my mom hooking it up and getting me into school. I go to college and I just don't go to class. I uh, just like completely stupid kid blew off school completely, but at the same time was telling my family how great I was doing. Oh yeah, I'm getting all A's, killing it. Things are going so well, and I'm literally not going to class. I'm not. I'm not even exaggerating. I stopped going to class. I had like a pure F in like every class. And then on top of that, in the first semester of college, uh, there was this riot uh, that happened on campus because this is back in 2006. Uh, so our football team, they lost the championship game. Now our football team, they're division one double A, okay? This is not major division one football. And to be honest, the students at UMass were not even that interested in the football team to begin with. Right, like there isn't this fervent fan base that's like rabid about its football. It was just like they lost in this championship game that wasn't even home. It was it was away, and just for whatever reason, the school just decided that that was a good enough excuse to riot. And so there's this huge riot that ensues <laughs> over the loss of this game, and I'm completely sober, and I'm like, oh my god, that's amazing. I want to be a part of this riot. Maybe it was that like violent streak I had growing up or something. But like I participated in this riot till like the bitter end when like the riot police are there like shooting rubber bullets at us. There's like tear gas in the air. It's like pure chaos. Again, stone cold sober, just enjoying being a part of this riot. And then the next day you look out and the campus is just destroyed in this one part of campus that I was living in. And like, again, like I'm a kid, like being an idiot, not even thinking about consequences. The school had had previous riots just because it was a huge school, huge undergrad population, and they had riot cameras set up everywhere. And so they set up a website on the police webpage 
that had all still shots and videos from the riot. And basically anybody on campus could anonymously call out who was in pictures and that person would get expelled. It was like a witch hunt. And like this huge swath of people got expelled from school, like right away. And I found myself on the website. No one had called me out, but I found three pictures of myself. And so this is the end of the semester. I'm watching this unfurl where like people I know are getting booted from, from college. And I, I have this pathetic phone call to my dad. I'm like, hey dad, so I know I've been telling you that I've been getting all A's. That's not true. I'm actually failing every class. And I'm probably going to get expelled because I was a part of this riot and everyone's getting expelled. And he was like, are you kidding me? Like <laughs> expletive, expletive, expletive. And so he comes up, my dad is like so smart, put together to like try to find a way to keep me in the, in the in school because at this point my grades alone are putting me in jeopardy of being booted. Um, so he gets to the deans like there's no hope, your grades are atrocious. Um, I also had a series of complaints in the dorm for bad behavior. No one knew about the, the riot yet, but so it's like after this meeting with the dean, my dad's like, dude, you're failing school. You're pretty much gonna get booted for bad behavior as is, and you may just be expelled. Like I'm pulling you from school. <laughs> so I, I had to leave school. It was like, I was a complete joke. And so I'm telling you all that because I came home after that semester in college and I was living in my mom's basement. My parents were split up, so I was living in my mom's basement. But it was the first time that like, now my family's not interested in helping me reach my potential. Now it's like, dude, you're 18, you blew it, get a job, figure it out. And it was really in that space where I, uh, I began to understand what it was like to be an adult, which is like, if you screw something up, well, it's your job to fix it. You're not going to have your mom writing essays for you for the rest of your life. Um, and so I ended up getting my act together. I started, uh, I went to a local school, got my grades up, got a job at a gym. Um, and also during this time, I met some Navy SEALs and it was like the right time in my life to be meeting them where I was really trying to get my stuff together. And I met these guys and it was just like, oh my God, like if I can become a Navy SEAL, I can rewrite all of the bullshit that I've created in my life, all the mediocrity that has been my life to date can be not only overwritten with something really extraordinary, but it can also be something that's kind of my own, that doesn't fall in line with the things that my family does. It's more like my own path, but just kind of on brand, if you will, or on par with their achievements. And it was just my calling. And so that pointed me in, a, in, a, in the direction I wanted to go. And that's the course I went. Yeah, that was my next question. Like, you know, going from this rebellious teenager <laughs> to, you know, becoming a Navy SEAL. When did I was going to say, when did you decide that you wanted to be a Navy SEAL? Was it in that moment? Yeah, so I, you know, I, without getting into like the nitty gritty, I, I met up with these two Navy SEALs, um, you know, and the, the thing about the way it works to become a Navy SEAL is that on the one hand, it is famously difficult to pass the course, to pass the selection course. But at the same time, it's one of the most accessible programs in the military. There are not that many things preventing just about anyone, assuming you're an American citizen and you're below the age of 30, it's, there's very little preventing you from going. I mean, yes, there are medical disqualifications up front. There are things that, like if you have a huge felony record, maybe that'll prevent you. But by and large, 
If you're even marginally interested in joining the military, there's a very good chance that you have the opportunity to go pursue uh, becoming a Navy SEAL if you wanted to. And so you have this very accessible program that almost nobody gets through. That on top of that, it's extremely well publicized. I mean, a huge reason why we're having this conversation at all is because of the notoriety associated with that unit. I mean, people want to be Navy SEALs. They're famous. They have all these great character traits that are just kind of you know, arbitrarily, not arbitrarily, but are totally assigned to them, like grit, mental toughness, loyalty, patriotism. People want that. But very few people make it through. And there's this draw to... to, to to succeed where so few people can. And when I met these two Navy SEALs, I had not really thought much about becoming a SEAL. But I knew enough about them that when I met them, it was like very, it was profound meeting these men. And it just struck me that, you know, the SEAL teams, in my mind, represented the purest form of meritocracy, where the the kind of, yeah, there's there's certain things that you would need to do in training to pass. You know, there's there's, technical things that you need to learn how to do, you know, whether it's learning how to tie specific knots underwater with little breaths or, you know, specific physical requirements, whatever it is. But overall, it really boils down to, are you prepared to suffer dramatically for six months? In exchange, you can become a Navy SEAL. Can you suffer mentally, physically, emotionally uh, and be brought to your knees for about six months? If you can do that, you can be a Navy SEAL. And it just spoke to me and it just seemed very much in line in a way with even though, you know, my own call it mediocrity to this point in my life, none of it was disastrous. It was just kind of like I was squandering opportunity after opportunity because I was just so quick to say, well, I don't want to be some academic. I want to do something else. I wasn't actually making strides to do anything else. So I was just kind of being an idiot. But because of that, I, I consistently put myself in a position where I was worse off. You know, it's like being at school and having to call my dad and be like, I've been lying to you about my grades and I'm probably going to get expelled. Like, yes, is that my fault? A hundred percent. That is a hundred percent my fault. Nobody else's. But the experience of going through something like that. And honestly, there's been a host of other kind of similar phone calls and interactions I've had where like once again, I've screwed something up and I have to deal with the consequences going through something like that it made me kind of hardened to honestly experiencing some kind of hard times and so i saw the seal teams as like hey i can suffer really really well that's something i'm good at because i keep suffering because i keep screwing myself like i can do this that's something i can do and i was in great shape too um you know you do have to be in, in good shape and i did start training kind of in earnest for it um and it just it just spoke to me and, and, and you know retrospectively and it's probably easy to say now, it would, I probably wouldn't have said this at the time, um, but I do believe that when I made the decision, like after meeting those SEALs, I was like, I'm gonna be a Navy SEAL. It wasn't really a choice anymore. It became something that was more of an imperative in my life, that there was very little else that would check the amount of boxes that becoming a SEAL would. And so it became like a life imperative. I didn't feel like I was debating every day whether I should do this or not. I didn't, when I was in training, you know, my reaction to like the really crappy stuff, because there's a lot of it, was not whether I should keep doing it. It was more like, I have to keep doing it. I don't have a choice in this because I've made my decision up front. Um, and that's really what ultimately propelled me through is that kind of early and, uh, and you know, kind of 100% commitment. So 
kind of rambling there, but that's that's it. So it was a calling for me, and 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 it happened pretty quickly, and I committed to it, and that was that. So, so committing to your calling, uh, you said, you know, I want to be a SEAL. Well, what was it like going from, you know, civilian to a, a listed member in the in the Navy? It was shocking, uh, but but for fairly specific reasons. So. To, to give some context, the people that go to the SEAL teams, as much as I mentioned that it's highly accessible, you know, becoming a SEAL really is highly accessible. Um, it does attract certain types of people, even though it's highly accessible. There's a definite like kind of group that tends to go. Um, for example, you know, just for listeners that may not know this, there's a pretty basic distinction between officers in the military and enlisted in the military. It's not a Navy specific thing, this is a military thing. If you're an officer, it means you have a college degree. And officers have a higher rank, they have more responsibility, they get paid more in many ways. Kind of generally speaking, there's more prestige. And there's lots of good things associated with being an officer that stem from having a college degree. The enlisted community, generally speaking, if you're looking at the whole military, um, does, does not have a college degree. It's not like you can't have a college degree to enlist, but having a degree is not required. So you get a lot of, you know, young adults that are joining the military, enlisting in the military right after high school. And that's their experience so far has been high school right into the military. And so when you think about those two, you have officers, that's like college educated, smart, prestigious, that's kind of the, the, the attitude, really high level, generally speaking about the military. And enlisted is more like your blue collar, straight out of high school, going to work type. For the SEAL teams, because the number of slots available to go to BUDS, which is the name of the selection course, it stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL School, that's the selection course for becoming a SEAL, it's in California. Uh, there's so few slots available for officers, officer candidates to try out that what happens is, is lots of people that are qualified to be officer candidates for the SEAL teams enlist, they enlist in the military just to have the opportunity to go be a SEAL. They don't care about the distinction between officer and enlisted. They just want their shot at buds because officers and enlisted go through the exact same training at buds. And at the team, although their jobs are different, they are very, very similar. And to be honest, at the team level, the SEAL team level, officers and enlisted, while there's a distinction and it's real, it is not nearly, the, the disparity between those two is not nearly the same as it is outside of the SEAL team. So you have a population of people that many, almost, I would say more than half at least, are going to be college educated. Because it just draws people that are like ready to take this next big step in their life. And so for me, even though I screwed school up like crazy, I did end up graduating first. I graduated college, um, which was about a year and a half after I meet these SEALs. And then I went, I enlisted. I just wanted to get my chance at Buzz. I probably didn't have the grades necessarily to be an officer candidate, but I had my college degree. I graduated. And so I enlist. So I had to go through Navy boot camp. I mean, like in order to go to Buzz, you need to become a sailor first. You go to Navy boot camp and then you go to a preparatory course, which is right across the street from boot camp. And then you go to Buzz. But your first experience with the military is going through regular Navy boot camp. And so at the time, I mean, I'm laser focused on becoming a Navy SEAL. I've trained like crazy to become a Navy SEAL, right? And I have my contract, I go to Navy boot camp. I have a college degree, I'm 22 years old. And 
even though they do segment the folks that are going to be going on to a special selection course like Navy EOD school, which is bomb tech, SWIC school, which is the fast boats, uh, that's another special operations group, SEALs obviously, they put them in special divisions, they're all kind of together. You are a part of a big machine, you're entering into the Navy, so even though maybe your kind of uh, classmates, if you will, are maybe similar to you in age and background, you're part of a huge institution. And it's just strange. I felt like I was an adult and I had made an adult decision and I go to boot camp and it's like, oh my God, it's like all 18 year old kids that look scared to death. It just, it was mind blowing the difference between the group that was planning on going to the, the special selection courses, you know, afterwards. Um, and the folks that, and I don't know anything about them, right? Like I don't know anything about the people that have joined the military, not planning to go to Buds, for example. But just it, the the culture was so different. It was like child to adult, not to be offensive, but it just seemed that way. And it was just strange to be in a place where I'm like four years older than these people that I feel like I'm in such a different place than they are, but we're all in the same place. And it was a little bit shocking. Um, I would also say boot camp in general. Um, it's no joke. I mean, it's, it isn't harder than, you know, SEAL selection, at least physically, it's definitely not. But mentally, I mean, it's, it's like the equivalent of being, not that I've been there, but it's like the equivalent of being in prison for two months where you're really cut off. You're, I mean, everything you do is highly regimented. And even though you go in saying, I'm not going to get broken down, I'm going to be so strong and be a Navy SEAL, like, oh, this would be so easy for me. Boot camp really, it grinds you down. It really does. And so, um, it was a shock for me. I was very pleased when boot camp was over. And, and once you finish boot camp, you go on into kind of like the real SEAL pipeline. And you're not really, you're not really exposed to the rest of the military really at all anymore. You're kind of like siloed inside of special operations. You go through the special operations prep course, which is an, another two months of just working out and training. And then you go to SEAL selection. And then when you're done with that, I mean, now you're going into like advanced SEAL training and you're kind of like on an island within the Navy. You're still part of the Navy, but you're now you're really under the, the umbrella of special operations, which is just, it's, it, it, it's like the non-military members inside of the military. That's what it feels like. So culture shock, but it's only two months and then you go on and you kind of go off into the world of special ops, which is great. What was it like preparing for Buzz? And what was it like once you arrived to Buzz training? So preparing for Buds is actually pretty straightforward. Um, even though there's lots of you know test gates and things that you're going to be asked to do at Buds, many of them you really can't actually practice because they require you know certain equipment and a certain environment. You can't really you can't practice, for example, some of the underwater tests that you would do with scuba gear on. One is too dangerous. Well, that's that's like one and two. I mean, it's super dangerous. And two, you don't usually don't have that equipment. So what you're left with is the one thing that all SEAL candidates have to do well on at the beginning of the kind of journey, which is it's called your PST. It stands for Physical Screening Test. It is a test that you have to take and score really well on to even have the opportunity to get a contract that will send you to buzz. So as a civilian, you're really training for this one particular physical screening test. And it's universally the same. Everybody who goes into the SEAL teams takes the same test. It's sponsored and run by the Navy. It's very official. You do a 500 meter swim and you swim side stroke because that's the stroke of choice. It's essentially called the combat side stroke. Um, and so you do 500 meters and then you have a 10 minute rest. And then you go into max push-ups 
in two minutes where you can't rest or collapse. You have to continuously do push-ups. Um, and then it's like a two-minute break, I think, and you go right into max sit-ups where someone's holding your feet to the ground and you're doing sit-ups where your, your, your arms are crossed over your chest and you're bringing your elbows up and above your knees and then back down flat to the ground. You're doing max number of those in two minutes. Um, so basically you would just keep going until the, the time ran out or you couldn't do anymore. You take a short break and you go to pull-ups. Uh, you, you have no time limit, but it's the max number of pull-ups you can do uh, from full dead hang all the way up with chin over the bar back down to full dead hang um, without coming off the bar. So if you, it, you could do it for an hour if you wanted to, but the goal is to do as many as you can without coming off the bar. And then as soon as you're done with that, it's another very short break and you go into a mile and a half run. And so it's all in succession and each of those individual uh, physical evolutions are not particularly difficult or taxing if you're, in, if you're in good shape. But it's been put in a specific order with very little breaks between each group that no matter how fit you are, it's totally exhausting by the end. If you're putting out to your maximum, right? So it's all relative. If my maximum is 60 push-ups and your maximum is 100 push-ups, if we're both going to max on push-ups, we're gonna be equally exhausted at the end of that segment. So everybody is totally spent by the end. It's actually, to be honest, a very stressful test, even though it seems very benign talking about it. But that is the one thing you know you have to score really well on. And so, you know, you're training to be a faster swimmer. You're training to do max push-ups, max sit-ups, max pull-ups, and be a fast mile-and-a-half runner. And so that ends up eating up most of the way you train. Uh, you're really focusing on calisthenics and cardio. Um, unlike, you know, what maybe Hollywood portrays as, you know, what special operators look like and Navy SEALs look like, I mean, it really does not cater to big, buff, huge, strong men. Uh, it really caters to endurance athletes that can do things for really long periods of time, uh, like running, swimming, that kind of thing. And so you end up taking on that type of training. And so I, I trained really aggressively for about six to 12 months. And nowadays there's loads of guides that are out there. It's very, it's very easy to get a training guide. The Navy actually created a very simple physical training guide that is extremely effective that you can just download for free online. So there's, there's loads of stuff out there, heavy calisthenics, heavy cardio, um, and you, you do your PST and then you get your contract and then, and then you ship out on your way. Um, and so to the, the other part of your question, you asked, uh, you know, what was it like showing up to BUDS? Um, you know, training for BUDS, you're, you're home and even, even if you're training like a maniac and, and you're maxing out and you're doing all the right things, the difference between being, a, being at home training and really being at BUDS is at the end of the day, I'm going back to my house. I'm sleeping in my bed. I, have, I can take time off. I can, you know, play video games. I can watch a movie. I can eat whatever food I want. I have friends around. The point is, is I have lots of comfort items that even if I'm being really stoic and disciplined in my training, I can't get rid of the fact that I'm not literally at buds. When you get to buds, you have the intimidation factor, not only of your classmates, many of whom, frankly, are quite intimidating on their own right. I mean, buds really attracts some literally world-class athletes, professional athletes people with serious pedigrees, your SEAL instructors, the people that run SEAL training at BUDS, they look every bit the part, covered in tattoos, super intimidating, you know what I mean? It's, like it's a very, very intimidating environment, especially folks like me, you know, that show up and I look, I was in good shape, but I was a very average sized 
person with really no no pedigree, really none. So I, I'm, I'm bringing very little to the table. I got no pedigree, I got no resume. And you get to Buds and now it's like every day, everything is on the line. And you just instantly are like, man, everybody else here seems so much more ready for this than I am. But the beautiful thing is the people that show up that believe, you know, and it's not because they're lazy or something, but like in their life, if they've been really successful at things, take an athlete, for example, and I'm not trying to suggest that athletes don't work hard because it's the opposite, but take a professional athlete because there was some professional athletes in my class. Um, when I got there, a guy who played for the, the Diamondbacks, the baseball team. In order to get to a place where you're playing for the Arizona Diamondbacks, probably from a very early age, you were the absolute best baseball player by far compared to all of your peers. At every level, you were better than everybody else. Now, you worked hard as hell and you mastered your craft and you became a professional athlete, not on skill alone, but plus hard work. But every step of the way, your talent and your, your grit and determination was validated with you're better than everybody else. We're going to put you on the D1 college team. We're going to draft you in the first round. We're going to bring you to the professional club. You have all these, these marks where you are validated and given a, a, a healthy, you know, public pat on the back for how great you are. Going to Buds, it seems like they would be the best fit, people with that type of you know, setting a high bar for themselves and, and achieving it in, in such a public way, being a professional athlete. But the reality is those people show up with massive expectations, internally, externally. They're a professional athlete. You know, it's like they've only ever been the best at the thing they did. And they've worked hard for it their whole lives. But all the way they went, everybody saw how great they were and said, you're amazing. I do want you to play for my professional team. And they get to buds. And what happens now is the instructors, and it's not, it's, it's actually built into the course. You don't get pats on the back. There is no such thing as a pat on the back in buds. So the whole purpose of the course is no matter how amazing you are, we're going to bring you to your knees. You're going to be failing things. You're going to be doing poorly. And we're going to remind you how badly you're doing. You're never going to be told, hey, man, you're really doing a great job. And these amazing athletes and these people that are so accomplished one, they start to doubt themselves because they've never had a situation where people are like telling them all day long how effing terrible they are. Even if they're not being terrible, it's just a mind game, right? It wears on them. Not to mention you have just the reality that all of a sudden, you know, when you're doing sets of thousands of push-ups at a time, no one can do that. But if you are a professional athlete, you start thinking, oh my God, like I can't keep up with this regimen, with this cadence. And you start thinking, what's wrong with me? Why aren't I doing the thing I've always done, which is be successful, be the best. And it gets into their head and they quit in droves. But guys like me, I got no expectations. I'm, every day I was there, I was shocked I was still there. But as you watch these amazing people with pedigrees wash out, what you're left with are the people that go in expecting the course to be extremely hard. And if they pass the course, everyone will be shocked, including themselves. That's a much easier set of expectations to manage when it gets really hard. Now you're not like my entire, you know, reputation is on the line. And when it gets really hard and you're not able to keep up, you're not shocked. You're not a professional athlete. And so it really ends up being that the, the totally average people, they got no pedigree, thrive at buds. But 
in order to in order to be one of those people standing at the end that you know we're quote unquote average, you need to have the mental toughness up front to not give up when it looks like you don't fit in. And so it's the people with the mental toughness to stick it out and put in the work, but it's the people that also have expectations that this is going to be really hard. I'm probably not going to be the best at anything I do, but I'm just going to keep showing up. Those are the people that are left standing at the end, and it's why you look around at Navy SEALs, and they are the most random-looking group of people. Beyond maybe some similarities in tattoos and hairstyles and clothes, they hail from the most random backgrounds across the country, usually with almost no pedigree before they got there. Some are tall, some are short, some are fat, some are skinny. I mean, it takes all kinds, but it takes that mindset and it takes that commitment up front. So, did you pass Bush your first time, or did you get rolled? So I got rolled twice, but overall, my first experience with buds, I passed. So the way it works, I mean, obviously you probably know this to some degree. Um, you know, it's a six-month-long selection course. It's very common for people to get rolled, which basically means you pass. Or I'm sorry, you failed a particular test gate. Um, you know, enough times that they said you can't continue with this class. But we're gonna. This is gonna be effectively your your. Your last chance. We're going to roll you and make you continue with the next class when they get to this point in training, and you're going to try to do this test all over again if you can't, or if you if you fail anything else, you get dropped from training. The caveat is there's a thing called a medical roll, where if you have medical issues that are preventing you from continuing on with your class, there's the the chance that they may say, hey, I recognize that you have this medical thing going on, so we're going to medically roll you to the next class. The catches with both of those is you're only allowed one of each throughout your time at Buds, so you can be medically rolled. And you know, unfortunately, if you get let's say you break your leg and get medically rolled, and then you break your leg again later on, unfortunately, without someone stepping in to basically vouch for you and say it's worth giving you another roll, they will drop you, even though in theory it's not really your fault because they have these standards. The competition for these seats at Buds are extremely high. And so you got two, you got one med roll, and you get one. It's called performance roll, which is you fail a test, not medically related. I was medically rolled after Hell Week for swimmer-induced pulmonary edema, which is uh, when you're really cold and wet all the time. Something that's pretty common at buds. Uh, your lungs basically start uh, pooling this like pink, pink frothy, bloody sputum, and what it does is it it fills up your lungs. Not completely. This sounds really dramatic, but It fills up your lungs enough that it reduces your ability to take in a full breath. You basically have reduced lung capacity. It's actually a fairly common um, condition in buds, and it and it dissipates very quickly. It's not something that you you keep forever. It dissipates. But the trick is, in order for it to dissipate, you need to be dry and warm, like for a you know length of time. And those are two things you don't often get in buds. And so, if you're currently in buds and you get sight, which people typically get after Hell Week,、um, it's hard for it to go away because you're going to continue being cold and wet and miserable. So I rolled for that, and then I was put into the next class, and you know moved on to the diving portion of training, second phase, and I failed a test called pool competency, which is one of the more kind of famous or I guess infamous tests. That Navy SEALs all need to pass in order to graduate, and it's 20 minutes of you know emergency procedures underwater. It's a very stressful、uh, you know test where you're going on long breath holds.、Um, it's a pretty miserable test. 
Um, but it, it, at the end of it, if, you, if you're successful with it, you really are like this hyper confident, underwater, underwater confident person, so to speak. Um, but I was horrible at it. I was very panicky, um, and I failed my my first few attempts, and I got rolled for that. And so they were like, "Look, you've been you've been medically rolled, and now you've been performance rolled. You have nothing else. You have to go all the way to the end, uh, otherwise you'll get dropped." Uh, so I went in the next class, and I passed pool comp, and. Typically, once you pass pool comp, which is basically right in the middle of buds, um, statistically you're you're extremely likely to graduate. So, um, passed that, and you know, ultimately became a seal. Uh, all in all, I, I started with class two eight nine, buds class two eight nine in um, April of 2011, which was actually the same month that uh, the Bin Laden raid happened. So I was like at buds when we found out about the Bin Laden raid happening. And it was just like incredible to be a part of this community, albeit not really kind of like at the beginning before you joined, but being at the command, um, the Buds command. And, and, and we had this big meeting where they told us about it. It was just incredible. Um, so that was April 2011. And then I actually put my trident, which is the insignia you wear in your uniform um, in September of 2012. But that includes SQT, which is another six months of training. So how did you overcome and endure buds? Um, I think that, you know, not to make it overly simplistic, I really do believe that uh, if you're able to really commit to graduating the course uh, before you arrive, what I mean by that is if you actually go in to buds saying, I am going to graduate, not I hope this works and I hope I, I don't fail. A lot of people go in with the attitude of, oh my God, I hope, I hope, you know, I don't get hurt or I hope I don't fail or I hope I don't quit, whatever it is. Um, if you go in with the attitude like I did, and I, I wasn't, no one told me this, I just had this attitude of like, you know what, I have no clue what's going to happen, but I'm going to this course in order to graduate. I'm not going to just test the waters. I'm going because I'm going to graduate and become a seal. And so when things were really hard and stressful for me, my reaction was not a debate about whether or not I should continue training. I wasn't, I wasn't battling the urge to quit training. I was just at times just anxious and, you know, stressed out about different things that were, were, were required of me as part of the course. But the way I was looking at it is these are requirements of me. These are not choices I'm making. I'm not choosing to, you know, do my best and, 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 you know, pass this test. I have to pass this test. If I'm going to graduate this course, none of this is optional. It's all required of me. And so it's still, it's just as miserable doing these tests along the way, but your mindset around it, if you adopt the one I just described is it's pretty straightforward. It, it's like this, you know, few people when they're given an assignment in school, looking back to our high school days, right? You're given a, an assignment. You got to write this paper and it's due in a week. Few people say, man, I'm going to drop out of school because I don't want to write that paper. Some people do. That does happen. But by and large, most people view high school as a requirement. They may hate the crap out of high school and they don't want to do it. But there's a part of them that looks at it as a, as a requirement, right? So even if they do a bad job, they do the paper. They do the paper, they might be late on it, but they do it because it's a requirement. They didn't start with, man, I got this paper I gotta do, I'm gonna drop out. They may be so upset about this paper they gotta write, it's cramping their ability to go out and do anything else. But it doesn't feel like an option. It feels like this annoying thing that they have to do. 
that was the mindset that I got into with all the crappy stuff we had to do, the tests we had to do. It was like, God damn it, like I don't want to do this. But I wasn't thinking about literally not doing it. I was just belly aching and being cynical about how much it sucked. The same way doing papers sometimes in school sucked. But I didn't drop out of school because I had a paper to do. I just did the paper. Same went for buds. You have people that go to buds and view every obstacle as a choice. If you do that, all of a sudden you go to this place where, oh my God, I got a paper to write. Am I going to drop out today or am I going to do the paper? You know, am I going to pass the test or am I going to drop out? You don't want to have that, that struggle. You want things to be very simple, kind of black and white, because the, the course is so miserable. You have to be in control of your mind. And I think that that is, that is the number one thing you can do to be successful, not just at Buds, but really any long-term difficult thing. Make the commitment to be successful up front and then be disciplined enough to not change your mind during. How was your transition from Buds to Teams? Um, so you go through Buds, which is six months long. Um, yeah, for me, it was a little bit longer because I got rolled the two separate times. And then you go to a thing called SQT, which is SEAL Qualification Training. It's another six months of training where it's not selection. Buds is like being chosen for the job. After Buds, you go to like actually learning how to do the job. And um, after that, you've been, you've been trained in, in all the disciplines of how to be a Navy SEAL. And you don't realize it, but you're actually like an excellent Navy SEAL by the time you finish SQT. You're lacking experience, like real world experience, you know, undoubtedly. But from a tactical and kind of proficiency standpoint, you're incredibly well-trained. I mean, SQT is a world-class training program. So when you go to the team, the, the issue that, that you, you struggle with is, the, is another like intimidation deal. It's like, how do I fit in? How do I go to a team, walk in the door, and like, you know, kind of establish myself in, in, a, in a command where my teammates, have applied these skills in war. They've been through the stuff that I've never even come close to. My entire career to this point has been just like training and, you know, test case, which is very different from going overseas and, and, and being, you know, an actual operator. And so really the struggle that you have when you join a SEAL team is not, am I good enough to be a SEAL? I think everybody knows that they're really, really proficient. Even if you don't have a way to validate that, you do feel like you know what you're doing. But it's like, how will I fit in with this group of people? Not to mention, I mean, you're also the lowest man on the totem pole right away. And with literally any organization, pretty much across the board, there's always that kind of element of needing to prove yourself and, you know, quote unquote, earn your stripes as a rookie, whatever, whatever team or organization you're a part of. It's just really hyped up in the teams where it's not hazing. I mean, there's, there's hazing, you know, across the military in general. It's not hazing just to be jerks. You know, it's like when you get to a team, what your teammates, your new teammates, your older veteran teammates, what they need to recognize in you is not only are you a proficient operator, but are you going to be someone that's actually going to fit in with the group and protect them overseas and keep the team alive and progress the mission? You know, it's like, unfortunately, that's a lot of kind of, call it subjective, uh, you know, kind of not even criticism, but it's your team is like evaluating you in your ability to actually do the job when the stakes are life and death. And it's something that you, the new guy, have no clue. You've never experienced it. And so you don't really know how to act. And it's very awkward. And you feel like 
everyone's judging you, but like that's part of the process. And so it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a six months to a year of feeling very socially awkward because the, the gulf in experience from literally anybody, I mean, the, the team that I joined, the platoon that I was joining within that team, my 25 man platoon, I mean, they literally had just gotten back from Afghanistan as I'm checking in. And it's like, here I am, Mr. New Navy SEAL, who's never done a goddamn thing, checking into my platoon that is literally a week ago was in a gunfight in Afghanistan. I mean, you don't need to know anything about the Navy SEALs or their culture to know how awkward of an interaction that is going to be. Hey guys, I'm your teammate now. Like it, it, <laughs> it doesn't line up. And so it's very difficult from a social perspective, but you are actually very well trained. So that's the thing. You're ready to do the job. It's just difficult to fit in, especially up front. So, so what was it like going, you know, six months of buds, six months of uh, SQT, then you meet your team for the first time. So what was that like going and being deployed for the first time with your team? Um, you know, by the time you deploy, uh, you've actually kind of gone through that whole awkward phase of I've just checked into the team and you don't know how to act. By the time you deploy, I mean, we had a workup and the workup is basically, um, you know, you, you train with your platoon for a deployment. You basically do a training. It takes about a year, year and a half, and you go deploy for six months. Um, by the time you're about to deploy, even though you, you, the new guy, me, I'm referencing myself, even though I, I, like, I had not deployed yet, I had now been through all the training. I've been through a workup with my platoon mates. I've spent a year with these guys, and I've, I've, I've kind of not made a name for myself like I've, you know, done anything but they know me it's no longer generic new guy who doesn't know what the hell he's doing it's like oh i know john he's one of my teammates and people had confidence in me same for the other new guys everybody basically figures it out and so when you deploy for the first time the only thing you don't have is like what is it actually like doing this job overseas you kind of accomplished everything else You've experienced going through the really hard selection course. You've been given all the skills. You've learned how to fit in to this community, which is a very difficult community to be a part of. It's, it's a hyper, hyper elite group of people that are extremely aware of who's pulling their weight, who's not, who's good, who's not. I mean, it, it is a very, call it judgmental, but because they have to be. The stakes are literally life and death, so it has to be hyper judgmental. And you've kind of figured all that out. What's left is, is employing all of that, all the things you've learned overseas. And you know what? There really isn't a good way to prepare for what it's like to be shot at. But you're ready for it as much as you possibly can be. You're extremely well-trained. And to be honest, you're eager to go to go do it. And so I remember being very eager to deploy, um, eager to kind of get that under my belt. Um, you know, doing the job overseas, I was eager to have that experience. And I was really fortunate um, you know, to, to get a chance to go see combat because not everybody does because it's nothing to do with your skill set. It has everything to do with timing. And right now it isn't like every single SEAL team like on repeat is just deploying to combat. That's not happening. Um, it has more to do with timing and, and whatever, you know, stage of the workup your, your platoon's at. And I was just lucky as a new guy, I got that opportunity. So I understand uh, you were hurt in the military uh, while deployed. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I went into being a Navy SEAL, uh, as many do, with the idea that I would do it for 20 plus years. That's the, 
the standard for career length. 20 years is when you get your pension from the military. It's that that's kind of how you view a full career in the military and in, the, in and in the teams. And so I went in with the mindset that I mean I'm going to invest all this time up front to just become a Navy SEAL. Of course I'm going to stick around and do a full career. I never had any sense that it would be anything other. So, uh, you know, I deployed to Afghanistan my first deployment. I was very fortunate to uh to have that opportunity and the way I kind of describe that deployment is you know like it was kinetic in the sense that you know we were on a fairly regular basis as a platoon um going out and engaging with the enemy and you know that is a I was extremely fortunate to have this experience I still really believe that Um so over the course of 5 months you know we were going out and, and engaging with the enemy and getting shot at shooting back the whole nine yards and then we had this one operation um and this is going to this is going to explain why I just described the whole 20 year thing um we had an operation where we went into this town and we ended up getting um ambushed uh you know they were ready for us They started shooting at us. We had uh, some of our partner force got shot, which is our Afghan partner force. Uh, our dog got shot, and it prompted. And this was midday, and you know at this point we've been in country for five months, and you know all the jitters are really everything's gone. We're like we're we're very much ready for this type of situation. All of us are. Um, I mean we've been doing it now for five months, and we had. of that entire deployment at least that I was on because I didn't stay I left after this deployment I'm sorry after this particular deployment I was medevaced I'm sorry this particular mission I was medevaced out there was still another month that my platoon was there and they got into quite a bit more after I was there but for my experience while I was there this was like the the most extreme uh intimate gunfight um where everything else to that point uh it felt like things were far away from us and it didn't feel uh intimate that's that's the word it felt distant it felt not happening right here it felt safe i felt like i could protect myself effectively this one it was like i don't know where the enemy is and we're in close quarters so we're in an urban part of of this village like very urban like literally call of duty style running into houses and like taking rooftops where you don't know who you're going to find getting shot at from directions that you don't really know where they're shooting at you from getting separated from the main group i mean it was just it was one of those situations that pay, nothing else we did was close to it and so we have this like maybe like 6 hour long and not literally constant but more or less for about 6 hours we all as a platoon kind of fought on the rooftops and at some point it, it first of all got dark and we had had a series of medevacs spun up because a, a number of our afghans had gotten shot and our dog got shot it was just like just a really chaotic 6ish hours and the enemy just kind of disappeared uh not because you know we had taken them out they just kind of evaporated it was like they it was like they went into thin air and it it was a it was bizarre and and I'll tell you that the the word that we had collectively or that we felt was frustration i mean we've now you know been engaged with the enemy for 6 hours you know this is this is something that we're doing right now we understand the stakes we trained for it, we've been doing it we've also taken some casualties on our side it's frustrating when all of a sudden very anticlimactically it just kind of ended just ended they just disappeared 
And, um, you know, there's a couple theories as to what happened, but basically we were all left in our kind of fire teams that had kind of maneuvered around the, the city. And fire teams are just smaller groups of seals and, 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 you know, our little units. And my fire team just was up in a part of the city where we just were closest to where, um, you know, one of our drones overhead after this kind of lull happens and nothing's going on, one of the drones overhead spots a group of people huddled behind a wall. That wasn't us. It was, a, you know, more than likely was the people we were just fighting. Um, not the only people we were just fighting, but maybe some of the people that had just been fighting with us. And our fire team was just closest to this location. And so the, the drone drops a, uh, you know, an infrared spotlight and we kind of go over to this area. We were expecting to be able to peer over this wall and like have a chance to scope it out from a distance and like look across this field and get a bead on who is behind this other wall and like, what are they doing? Um, but it turned out when we got to this, this particular area, um, when we peered over the wall, that, that the group of people that had been spotted on the drone um, were immediately on the other side of the wall talking you know a foot away and they hadn't heard us and there's you know six of us and um the, the this group they were the people we were fighting against there's i think seven of them and they were holding grenades at least two of them were with pins out for this exact type of encounter you know like if anybody finds us well they're gonna you know die trying that kind of thing and in kind of a split second we we started engaging them they lobbed grenades over the wall uh, one actually hit my shoulder and landed next to me. Um, and, you know, then for me, my memory is, uh, I, I actually, you know, my, it, it detonates and, and you know, I remember thinking, um, I was shocked. Actually, I had two things that I thought in the moment. And honestly, time really does slow down when you are facing a true life and death situation. Your body goes into like hyper, hyper protective mode where everything that you're doing is focused on keeping you alive and your brain goes into like superpower mode where you're like completely in tune with everything that's happening around you. Um, it's a survival technique and it really only would happen if you were in an actual life and death situation. And when this grenade came over the wall, I remember time literally kind of slowed down and I watched it hit my shoulder. And I remember thinking, I hope it detonates below my head so my mother can recognize me when I'm obviously going to be killed in a second here. I just hope they don't, it doesn't take my head off so they can recognize me. And when the grenade fell to my waist and it's still in the air, I remember thinking, thank goodness, it's not going to cut my head off. And then when it landed on the ground, it detonated next to us and I was still alive because it blew up and it felt like a bunch of rocks hit me. I was shocked to still be alive. And I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm still alive, but I'm probably going to die any second here. And, you know, what ultimately happened, because I actually went on in and out of consciousness, I was dragged to cover, other people were incapacitated, our medic, the, the one medic we had with us was the only guy not kind of grievously, not grievously, he was the only guy not totally incapacitated right away. And he saved the lives of all of us. He saved my life. He, I was dragged to cover, you know, luckily the people we were engaging with, they took off running, we called in, not me, someone else called in an airstrike. Um, you know, the, the town kind of erupted. The other fighters in the town were just kind of arbitrarily shooting in our direction. And I remember I was sitting um, against a, a wall in an alleyway after I'd been dragged to cover and I couldn't get my tourniquets on. And I was just watching a pool of blood grow underneath me. And, and I did remember thinking like, you know, uh, first my, my vision went, I couldn't see anymore. I couldn't hear anymore. Um, 
And I remember just like thinking about my wife sitting on the couch at our home in Virginia and uh, thinking she'll read in the newspaper, April 19th, 2014, Jonathan B. Allen killed in action, Logar, Promise, Logar Province, Muhammad Agat, you know, Navy SEAL, USN. And I remember thinking so like viscerally, that that's going to happen. And, you know, with all my senses fading, I knew that this was the end and I leaned over and died. But I, I believe that I died. That's how it felt. That's, that's totally the, it was a feeling of letting go. That really is the only word to describe. It's like I was holding on to my life and then I let go of it. And then my medic happened to see this happen, ran over, found the bleed, put tourniquets on and saved my life. Um, I was able to, under, under fire, with my teammates literally carrying me, make it to the medevac, which is about a mile away from where we were. It was in, just because my teammates were like Johnny on the spot, like it, without them, I die. And, you know, I was medevaced. Uh, never, went, never went back to my, uh, my actual site where we were staying, our camp. You know, we, I went to a couple hospitals in Afghanistan and I was flown to Germany um, where they, they send people with combat injuries uh, and then flown back to the States. And, um, you know, I, I was fortunate to keep all my limbs. You know, I still have 26 pieces of shrapnel in my hip and legs and, you know, definitely have some residual, you know, pain and, and, and issues from it. But ultimately, very fortunate to be alive. And even though I was able to deploy uh, a second time, uh, those injuries ultimately uh, ended my career early. And so I was medically retired. Um, but I would say that even if I had not been medically retired, after that injury, I really felt like my, my luck had really run out. And I felt really, you know, that I was on almost borrowed time, that I shouldn't be alive. And I started really looking hard into wanting to get out while I was still literally alive. And so I highly doubt I would have reenlisted if it hadn't been for just being medically retired. I just want to ask, you know, when you started to think about your wife and you were sitting there, you know, when you reflect on that experience, like how does that make you feel like this? That, that, that just seems so heavy, you know what I mean? Like a heavy load to carry. You know, it is. And the, the thing that I've experienced over the past couple of years is at the time, and, and I don't mean literally as I'm sitting there in Afghanistan, but in the kind of immediate aftermath, when I was back in Virginia, you know, I'm, I'm fully, I mean, early on really in this whole medevac procedure, from injury to going to the first hospital, it was clear that, um, you know, my injuries were not life-threatening. They, initially they didn't know, and so there's a period of time where they weren't sure, um, but very quickly it was like I was stable and no one was saying, we don't know what's gonna happen to him. And I knew that too. So like I, beyond the kind of immediate blast and all that, which was very intense, and not just for me, I mean, my, I have other teammates I'm not getting into, or it's not my story to tell, but I was not the only person injured. And, you know, I, I, you know, by the time I was, you know, back home in Virginia, it, it was like I, I desperately wanted to find meaning, you know, serious meaning in that experience, you know, because even though I was very quickly stable and, and good to go, had it not been for my medic, who, by the way, it literally took me three years to muster the courage to go speak to my medic. Like the person who saved my life, it was such a profound experience that I couldn't really comprehend. And because I never saw, I didn't go back to the site and he got, when he came back, we didn't see each other and he went to a different platoon and I went somewhere else. 
like I, I avoided him because I didn't understand how to even begin to have that conversation with him. Like it was just this, this, this experience that I couldn't make sense of because here I am like back in Virginia, just doing normal stuff, you know, like just eating food and, you know, hanging out with my wife and cutting the grass. But like, there's this experience where I fucking died. Like mentally, emotionally, that was it. I died. I know what that feels like. But I didn't. Because someone literally saved my life. But I can't make sense of it. I can't I can't add any sort of big meaning to it. That's how I felt right in the aftermath while I was still active duty. Now that I've gotten out, you know, I was retired at the end of uh, 17, 2017. And I've had some separation from being in an active duty team and deploying and all that. I'm a total civilian. Without meaning to, I've had, I've actually had an opportunity to reflect on this experience. It's very hard to reflect on something when you're inside of the culture that is special operations and you're active duty and you're getting ready for the next thing. You know, no one is belly aching about injuries. No one is talking about the stuff that's going on with them. It's really, it's all about like mission readiness you know, going forward. And um, with a little bit of separation, when I got out of the teams, over the past couple of years, I've, without meaning to, just kind of realized how important that experience was um, in terms of restructuring what I'm gonna do with my life. And it sounds a little bit cliche, but this is, this is the, the, the conclusion I've come to. That experience reminded me that we all have a clock associated with us. I was fortunate enough at the age of, you know, 25, 26 to feel my own mortality, to actually experience what it feels like to really understand that you have a limited amount of time on this planet and nothing is promised. If you can capture that feeling, and I feel like I have, it's put, in a, le it's put a level of urgency on everything in my life. Being a good father no longer is something I can put off. Being a good husband, it's no longer something I can put off. Building a business, becoming successful, friendships, decisions, tough decisions, nothing can wait. Nothing can wait. Because right now, being turning 31 here in just a couple days, I feel like I could go at any minute. And at the same time, it's extremely difficult to be constantly worried, not worried, but thinking about the fact that you have limited time it has created a sense of urgency that is propelling all of my businesses. All of my decisions are sound. I don't have regrets. I don't have time for people that don't that, that treat me like crap. I don't have time for that. I don't even dwell on it. I care about very specific things and I prioritize them above everything else and everything has a sense of urgency. Because if it doesn't, you're just gonna die and you're gonna have regrets. Wow, that's powerful. Um... My, my follow-up question was, you know, how long were you in the military? How will, how was your transition from military to civilian life? Um, so I was in from 2010 to 2017, um, just about seven years all in. I mean, I was only a SEAL from 2012 to 2017, but in the Navy for the seven years. Uh, my transition was, uh, you know, in some ways it was very rocky, but at the same time I was very lucky because, um, you know, my timeline to exiting the military, at one point I was anticipating about two years and I knew I had these two years. 
and I was kind of getting ready for what I was going to do next. And I was planning on going to business school, getting my MBA, and then becoming a consultant at either, you know, one of the top three firms, you know, McKinsey, DCG, Bain. And um, my timeline was kind of all of a sudden abruptly changed to only eight weeks. And there was very little I could do about it. Um, with a short transition timeline, my plan for business school kind of got canned. Um, and suddenly I'm like looking for a job right now. I was lucky enough to, you know, have the good fortune of connecting with a former investment banker turned entrepreneur. His name's Jordan Selleck. Um, we connected on LinkedIn. I was just kind of looking for help from anybody. I never met this guy, but you know, when you're desperate, you're desperate. And this guy offered to help me and I'm like, great, I could take any help I can get. And what started as a, I'll help you, you know, with your resume, cause I'm a civilian and I, and I kind of get it. I can help you do that. Um, turned into a friendship and it also turned into Jordan who did not have military experience, recognizing that one of my biggest, uh, deficits in the job search was that I, I really didn't know any, anybody that did any of the jobs I said I wanted. So I didn't have a professional network. I had my, the people I knew in the military and that's about it because in special operations, you're living in a bubble. You have, you have very little exposure to anything outside of special operations. And he was like, look, in addition to your kind of typical job search that you're doing right now, you really ought to make an effort to just start meeting people in industry, in the private sector, because that is actually usually like a referral ends up being one of the more common ways to land your you know, quote unquote dream job. And I love the concept of something so concrete like that. And the two of us really led by him, but ultimately me really getting on board with it. We, we came up with this idea to have a networking event that was going to happen like right away because I had very little time. Um, you know, he lived in New York. He was like, come to New York. I know a bunch of people in the city will just like get a bunch of the people I know in my network to come to this thing. Why don't you round up some folks on your end? You know, other SEALs that are getting out soon will have this networking event. Hopefully some people get some jobs. And so we built like an agenda for it. We raised money for it. Um, you know, and we, we had speakers come in. It was like this whole thing, right? Lots of energy went into it. You know, lots of money. It, it like turned into a really big deal. And you know, we go to this event and I'm really anticipating getting a job out of this event that I've you know, put together with Jordan. Uh, but ironically, of the 20 veterans that went, five were offered real jobs. Two accepted their jobs and, and like very quickly were like fully employed with these awesome firms in New York and nobody was approaching me. Um, none of the professionals really were taking me seriously or so I thought, but it turned out that the impression I had given to everybody in attendance was that my job was running these types of networking events and nobody thought I was in the market. So it was kind of funny. Uh, I came back uh, from that event frustrated, but happy for some people that did well. Um, luckily the Navy ended up giving me another six months um, instead of just kicking me out the door. Um, in that time, uh, I saw the kind of magic that was this first event and me and Jordan really worked to raise some money and professionalize it and create a full charity around helping transitioning Navy SEALs and special operators connect with the private sector to get jobs. Um, and so by the time I was stepping out, you know, being retired, we had, you know, built a full blown business around connecting this really elite group with people that want to hire them. Um, and you'd think that it, that would exist somewhere else. But the reality is, is there's lots of veteran focused charities. There's not that many that just exclusively focus on the kind of upper echelons of the military, really, because you, it takes someone from that community to really understand the distinct problems, dilemmas, issues that they have. Because a lot of people view 
special operations and think, oh, they'll be fine. They're special operators. They're going to get out and everyone's going to want to hire them. But that's not really the case. So we built this charity. Um, to this day, still running it. It's called Elite Meat. It's a charity that, again, it connects special operators with businesses. We've struck up some pretty amazing relationships and in the private sector, we have you know, hundreds of people that are taking advantage of our program. We've helped hundreds of people get jobs um, and I'm very proud of it. So I was able to kind of create my own job. And I also have a couple other side hustles now, but that's my full-time job. So I wanna, I wanna ask, you know, going from an elite group like the SEALs and an elite group of individuals being so team oriented and team focused, um, how was it transitioning to like the career field and um, trying to promote yourself and being kind of selfish in a sense. That is a that is a very good question, and it's also something that is, is one of the bigger issues in special operations. You, you nailed it. Um, you know, as you know, in order to get a job, you need to communicate to people why you're valuable. You're not going to get a job because you communicated how great someone else was. You need to communicate how good you are and why you specifically have unique skills and unique experience that makes that makes you the best candidate for a job compared to other candidates it's it's a hundred percent a hundred percent self-promotion and in the seal teams and really in special operations as a whole um, there's a huge stigma attached to people that are kind of in it for themselves and frankly there's very few people that when they're in when they're active duty care about themselves it's very you know sacrifice yourself for the betterment of the team what people are really gauging their, you know, uh, their ability and their kind of skill level on is how much am I contributing to the team? It's like team first on steroids and making the shift and transitioning out. It's very difficult to break that. Not to mention, it's not just let me teach you how to promote yourself, because if that was all it was, we would just put together a course. This is how you, you know, market yourself on social media. These are the people you should reach out to reach out to if you want to strike up an interview, you know, it's not mechanical. It's not like they just don't know how. They know how. It's because culturally, it is so hard to break that 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 team first attitude, especially when there is a history of people that quote unquote like go public from the SEAL teams, me being one of them, that are just absolutely hated by the people that are active duty because it looks for all the world like they are just shamelessly self-promoting and they've lost sight of what it means to be in special operations and being a SEAL. And there's this massive divide between active duty that are team first because that's what matters. And it's important that it's team first. It's our job that requires that attitude. But transition and getting a job and moving on in life also requires something unique. And it really is in contrast to you know, the, the, the culture and attitude when you're inside of the team. And so that is, that is an enormous problem for transitioning special operators because on some level they know, especially if their timeline is ticking down and they have a family to provide for, they know that they have this massive thing that people are gonna be interested in, being a SEAL for example, that has lots of translatable skills, has lots of things that people want. But in order for in order for them to take advantage of this amazing experience they have, they need to tell people about it. And that is like an existential crisis for many of these transitioning operators that really feels like betrayal. And so part of what Elite Meat does is we say, look, you have to, unless you're prepared to just completely undermine and marginalize your life. You have to find a way to talk about it. And so we're not saying you must, we're saying you should. We're saying 
you know, realistically, if you're not if you're not finding a way to talk about it, you're going to spend the rest of your life like wishing you had. Because with a little time and separation, you're going to realize that that's the the most profound thing you bring to the table, at least right now. And you should be taking advantage of it. We'll show you how, but it's going to be on you to do it. And so one of the cool things that's happened just within Elite Meet, you know, we have right now about 700 people that are members. The culture inside of our community, the Elite Meet community, which is very, we have an internal channel that's very active. We have events all over the country, like lots of them. We had one in Charlotte and uh, one in, uh, not Charlotte, one in Chicago last night. We have another one in Houston, I think tomorrow. They're everywhere that it's become when you're inside of Elite Meet that is a safe place for these guys and gals to talk about what how difficult it is to market themselves. And they, they people have some experience with it now and it's just very collaborative and it's very, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, paradigm shift in thinking for a lot of these folks. And being in a, in a community that is still the people that they respect, that they, that, that they understand. It's a special operations community who's in elite meet, but the shift has occurred for this group because now they're either realizing they need to find a way to self-promote or there's a group that's already doing it and they're kind of passing down what are the best ways to do it, what are some pitfalls, it's a very kind of safe place for this group. And I think it's actually been very revelatory for this community, even if the active duty community views it as something that's bad, I know it's something that's good because I've walked on both sides of the aisle and it's needed. And I think that it's really filling a gap that nothing else is. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours, both as a SEAL and a CEO? Um, I think you got to be willing to take some risks. I think that you know the people that that do well in life, whatever that whatever their metrics are, typically it involves some level of risk. And in order to take a risk on anything, you need to commit to the fact that you're taking a risk. You need to have the ability to not have something be guaranteed. That's what a risk is, right? And you need to be willing to, with that in mind, still be 100% committed to something. For example, like building a business. So I've actually, I'm in the process of building my third company. Um, it's very easy to come up with an idea. You know, if, if, I mean, yeah, I'm not talking about like reinventing the wheel, but it's relatively easy to come up with a concept that might sell. It's also relatively easy to generate early support because it's new, people like the idea, you know, you, you're, you know, it's like the stakes are low because you're not supposed to succeed. But in order to take your, your, your company from ideation phase and early stage to like actual revenue producing real company, you need to treat it like this is a big investment up front of everything you got like it's there are a hundred percent going to be major major issues with your company after the the honeymoon phase ends which could be very brief you can either shut it down and say it didn't work because all these problems arose or you can understand going into starting a business that that's part of the process it might feel unique to you like you have this really unique and awful problem that's making it so you can't make any money and your customers are leaving and your staff is leaving but like that's part of the deal if you went in and said I'm gonna build this business I'm committing to building this business despite the fact that it's something like 90% of startups fail if you go in saying I'm gonna do it when stuff goes bad You've already committed to the fact that there's going to be issues along the way. You've committed to the risk. You've committed to being successful. And instead of just like in Buds, as I was telling you, 
instead of debating whether or not to shut down the company 24-7 or debating whether you should stay in buds or continue, you make that decision up front in spite of the risks and you do what you got to do to move on. You do what you got to do to fix the problems. And I think that this is generalizing like crazy, but I think that a lot of people, especially with the kind of prevalence of social media and the immediacy of consuming information and, and media, everything is so accessible. And it's also really easy to kind of embellish your own successes and make it seem like you're really, really successful and maybe you aren't. You know, it's, it's hard to do things that take a long time with little rewards along the way, even if the reward at the end is great. I think our society right now is not really setting our next generation up for putting in long periods of difficult work with little reminders that you're doing a good job. But if you're the person that commits up front to something, says, I understand this is a lot of work. I also understand I might not be successful. But if I just put my head down, show up every day and do the work, no matter how bad it gets, if I can commit to that right now, that level of consistency and, 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 and discipline, that will get you the biggest payout you can have in this life. The short wins are not the ones you want. You want the long-term wins, and it really does require putting your head down, committing to something that may not even work, and putting your full effort forward no matter how bad it gets. What are some of your biggest failures, and what did you learn from them? So I had one that's, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a failure as much as it's something that was like extreme adversity for me. Um, in third phase, that's the end of, of field selection, so BUDS training, um, there's uh, early in, in the thir in third phase, you go and you're exposed to tear gas. You've been exposed to tear gas in boot camp, it's a pretty common thing, but the level of tear gas that you're being exposed to in uh, third phase, it's a lot. Like it's a, it's a pretty, it's a known kind of miserable thing. And the only catch for your class is you can't run away because you're outside, you're in this little like pack. And when they fire off all this tear gas, you just got to take it, right? It's misery and it's like a man test and it's like, you're going to take it, right? And again, the only catch is you don't run. And so as, as much as it's kind of funny that I totally end up bolting, the reason it's a failure is because at this point in training, you passed the major test case, right? You're basically going to be a Navy SEAL. You're not done with BUDS yet. You haven't even started SQT. But in the eyes of your peers in the class with you and in the eyes of your instructors, you're going to be a SEAL, like 99% chance, because you've just passed all the really, really hard stuff. And so when I bolted from the CS gas thing, it was not a you, you know, you coward, F you, what an idiot. It called into question my ability to do this job. People were not like ragging on me and giving me a hard time, ha ha, you ran, like you coward. People like weren't talking to me. The instructors treated it like it was a, a sign that I in fact shouldn't have made it through selection. That I'm someone that isn't gonna be a good seal because I'm literally a coward. I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna be a good, I'm not gonna be combat effective. And so it wasn't, it, you, could, you could make the case that it was failure in the sense that I ran and I shouldn't have run. But I think that what you're talking about with what is your biggest failure and what people want to know when they ask you about what was your biggest failure, what they want to know is what was the time in your life where you were at your absolute lowest point? That was probably at least in part because of you. You did something or you didn't do something to put you in a position where you're, you're staring down real adversity and how did you handle it? Like that's, that is what every job interview is looking for. How did you handle it when things weren't going well? 
And not only that, how did you handle it when things were going their effing worst for you? And in that moment for me, that was my low, low. That was a low point for me. It was so hard to look my, my classmates in the face, to look my, my cadre in the face. It was like a, a true shameful moment for me. But the only solution I saw, and it's, it goes back to what I just told you about what it takes to be you know, a SEAL or to be a CEO, the only solution I saw was I can't talk my way out of what has happened because they've seen it. It was real. It happened in front of everyone. They've formed, they've formed their opinions. The cadre is reinforcing those opinions. I can't do anything about that. I can't talk about it. All I have is what I do next. That's it. I have nothing else I can do. And so for the final four weeks of training where this happens when you're out on San Clemente Island and you have uh, four straight weeks of training, there's no breaks. It's just seven days a week. You train, train, train. It's pretty miserable. And then you're done with buzz. I just decided that I was going to show up every day. I was going to keep my mouth shut. I wasn't going to make excuses. I wasn't going to be bitter. I, I don't care if you make fun of me for it. I don't care if you ignore me for it. I'm just going to do the best job I can going forward. And over time, people will stop thinking about the guy that ran from the CS gas. And they'll think, wow, John's a great teammate. And you know what? Over time, that worked. It was so hard to just do that. But it goes back to if you want something that's a a big win in your life, it's probably going to take more than just one instance of being successful. It's going to take every day putting in the work, putting your head down when it sucks and getting it done. And so that only reinforced for me that I have the capacity to handle this extreme adversity because I also have the capacity to put my head down and just keep showing up, keep doing the work. And so I've had subsequent failures in my life failure to make good decisions in my businesses that's resulted in losing money that's resulted in problems for the staff now there's the immediate solution you can come up with but typically if you've made the mistake and you're leading the organization it's not time for excuses it's time for action and typically that action is over time you just put your head down you get it done it's not here's my quick fix guys everything's better and stop thinking about my failure it's i'm going to show you that i'm more than that failure and i'm going to do it over time that there's no question that that thing I did that one time that was bad has been far outshadowed by all the good things I've done every day, every day since. So our podcast is titled The Process Podcast. What does trust in the process mean to you? I would say that, you know, in my life, I've been through one distinct process. I've been through a few in the sense that I went through school, which is a process to become educated. Um, you know, I've, I've been through other processes. There's one overarching process I've been through, which is civilian to, you know, Navy SEAL. And that process takes a lot of time. And time is really the one thing that needs to happen in order to get from, you know, the person you are now to the person you're going to be. It can't happen immediately, unless it's something that's not really substantial, like substantial changes, big wins, those types of things take Time. And in a society that is used to achieving things instantaneously, like how many likes they get today, right now on this one post I did, how many views or listens or downloads is this podcast going to have? You know, what do my friends think about me right now? How much money do I have right now? You know, everything, everything is immediate. Trusting the process, it goes against that completely, which is the best things in life typically are the hardest to get and take the longest to get to. 
if you trust the process, whatever your process is, whatever your seal selection process is going to be, maybe it's becoming a successful business owner. Maybe it's going to college and being the first one in your family to graduate college. Maybe it's becoming an, a professional athlete. Maybe it's becoming a scientist, whatever it is. If it's, if it's something that is in your mind worth it, there's probably a process involved and it probably takes time and you have to trust the fact that if you just keep showing up and doing your job, doing what's asked of you over time, that process will reward you. It's not immediate, it's long-term. It's all about you know trusting the process, trusting the long-term process. I wanna say thank you for joining us. You know, thank you for sharing everything that you've shared with us and, you know, letting us into some intimate moments in your life. Um, I also want to thank you for your service. And I just wanted to ask, uh, do you have any lasting words that you want to leave with the listeners? Well, thank you for your kind words. I think that I've I've really harped on the, the concept of just showing up and doing the work. Uh, I would just echo that. If you want something big in your life, stop looking at it as the thing you don't have right now and being upset with that you should look at it as, as the thing you can get if you are willing to trust the process and put in the work every single day thank you uh where can the listeners find you uh, to follow you and your inspirational posts and things like this um so i'm very active on social media you can find me on instagram uh, my handle is uh john it looks like john ballin 416 so it's john b allen 416 um, I'm on TikTok as well. That's the same handle. I'm on LinkedIn. I think you just got to search probably John Allen Elite Meet because my name's pretty generic. Um, yeah, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok. And uh, that's, those are the three ones that I'm on. This concludes episode 36 of The Process. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And to like us and subscribe on either iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. Thank you. Trust the process. Trust the process. Trust the process. I think the main thing for me was trying to decide on who am I and like what I want to be and how I want to be remembered. Like that was my thing. You know, oftentimes I think about like my legacy and like the mark that I want to leave, not only on the industry, but the effect that I want to leave on people. Being a whole human being, going through my obstacles, going through the things that I'm going through, and not to only broadcast these things, but for it to inspire change.